Welcome to Get Amplified from the Amplified Group, the podcast for tech industry leaders and aspiring leaders who want to help their companies execute faster. As always, we're virtual. I'm back home in sunny Buckinghamshire. Vicky's over in deepest, darkest Oxfordshire. So Vicky, you best tell us who we've got on the podcast today. Thanks, Sam. I am always excited about our guests, but I am particularly excited about our guest today because Richard Jackson is our guest. And for all of those people who I have driven mad in the tech industry over the last 20 plus years, they have Richard to, uh, to thank for that because it was Richard that saved me from being a teacher and gave me my first job in distribution in tech in 1996. Mm. So that's quite a long time ago. So of all the people I say, I've known these people a long time. Well, I've known Richard the longest. So I'm absolutely delighted that he's on. And it's really interesting the topic we're going to talk about because even just on a call this morning with one of our clients, they were talking about the challenges between corporate and field. And Richard has had not only a wealth of experience in the UK, but he's also led sales teams in the US as well. So we've got a really interesting topic, which is just how different is a regional sales team in EMEA versus the US? So with that, I'm going to hand back to you, Sam. Brilliant. That's interesting. Very interesting. Obviously, my experience is confined really to the UK. Um, so quite keen to learn about how that works across different geographical boundaries, two nations divided by a common language, right? So Richard, you best, if you don't mind, um, give us a little bit of a positive hit career history just to lead our guests in. Oh, sure. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I'm delighted and what a great intro. Thanks, Vix. And uh, yes, we do go back a, a long way. And uh, I suppose I, if I start at the beginning of my own career, I've got to take it all the way back to when I was 16 years old, which seems a long, long time ago now. And it was a time when, like a lot of 16 year olds, I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. Um, my, I wasn't enjoying school, I never really enjoyed school, um, but I knew I wanted to do something e exciting and interesting. And my parents were going through a pretty bad divorce at the time and things were pretty tough at home. And they were sort of despairing of me because I, I just didn't know what I wanted to do in a career and I was the oldest and so on. But somehow they managed to get 500 pounds together, which was enough money to get me a plane ticket to head off to California. And my uncle's family left the UK in the 60s and they went out to Silicon Valley and he created an incredibly successful computer company called Altos. Altos went on to go public and they got acquired and it was it was brilliant but when I went out there I was 16 and I was going for a summer job and my cousin who's about the same age as me he's a year younger the pair of us worked in his computer company in the summer for six weeks and it was the best thing I think that could have happened to me, you know, from a this lost sort of 16 year old kid from a, a sleepy little village in, in England heading off to Silicon Valley. But I, I arrived in Silicon Valley and I had this amazing summer working in a computer company. And I knew at that point that I wanted to be in tech and computer of some description. Can I and just I, jump I, in I, a second? Yeah, I, yeah. So I've known you all these years and I didn't know that story. <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah. I know, it goes right back. I, I don't talk to many people about it because it just, I, I a lot of people think, oh, well, that's how, you know, you, you had a, you know, you had help. And I did have help. I had a lucky break. 
But um, I came back from, from, uh, from America and I'd asked my uncle if he could help me get started, if he just had some contacts. And they had a very small office down in Ascot in the UK. And I was living up in Cheshire at the time, so I, that was too far away. And the other company that he put me in contact with were based in Wigan. <laughs> so Silicon Valley to Wigan, a bit different, but you know, it was, a, it was an opportunity. And um, I remember the best bit of advice I got from him was, it doesn't matter what job you do, just get through the door, get into the company and then find your way. You know, if you get into a good company with good culture and good growth, you're, you'll have a great career. And it's such great advice that I would also pass on to any aspiring 16 or 17 year olds as they start their journey. Um, the bell. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's how it all started for me. So I got into this company called Logitech, not, not Logitech, the, the mice people, this was Logitech Distribution. And I met some brilliant people there and I'm still uh, in contact with a lot of them. In fact, um, the, the guy that hired me, uh, his name was Frank. He was, he was about 29, I guess, at the time. I was, I was 17 when I first met him. And uh, he hired me when I was 18. Uh, I never went to university. I'm still officially on my year off. So I, I never, never went to uni. And I just got, once I got through the door, I just loved it. And by the time I was 20, I was out on the road selling. And uh, my, all my pals were at university, completely broke. And there I was, I had this sales job and I was making money and just driving around the country and chatting to people and getting paid for it. I thought it was the most, best thing I could ever do. But the, the culture was great. And I just was surrounded by um, this high growth company. They were a startup. They were probably about 15 people when I joined. They were really, really tiny and small. And they went on to IPO and go public. So I went through that whole journey with them and saw how teams were built and how this whole thing came together. And, and then I, I left there and I, I joined a, a company called Data Guardian. We managed to turn that into 40% of the company's business from scratch within a few years. So that was quite an achievement and, and really hard as well because it was uh, most of the business was down south, but we, we had this, this northern office. But the thing for me at that point was I always wanted to do my own thing or at least have some equity in it. I, I really wanted to feel I was building something for myself and I didn't think I was going to get it there. So I left Data Guardian and founded Valenti Distribution and that's how Vicky and I met. And uh, I was only 27, I think at the time. I was really young. I didn't really have a clue what I was doing still, but I just knew that I wanted to start something and create something. And I, I've always loved doing that. I, I also realized that I had to get help. I couldn't do it myself. I was, you know, I was only a young guy. And so I got an investor in, very experienced guy who owned Datatech. And his idea and strategy was, well, why don't we start acquiring companies? And we'll get all these companies and we'll put them together. And then we'll IPO the whole thing and we'll create this big business. And I love that. I thought, well, yeah, let's do it. You know, let's, let's go for it. The challenge, of course, is that as you start integrating more and more companies, your share as the founder gets smaller and smaller and smaller especially if the companies you acquire are much bigger than you are because you end up having to give away more. So the first acquisition we did was Data Guardian. So we went back and bought the company. I was trying to get equity in the first place and we bought them and um, they became our first acquisition. And then we went on to do another one, which was uh, Unity Distribution. And at that point, my shareholding from being sort of the founder of this whole thing got smaller and smaller to the point where, you know, when you acquire, you bring in more people and more directors, and more owners and more equity so i had an opportunity to sell up sell my share and do something else or just stick with it and i decided i'd, I'd sell my bit and, and move on and it was about that time when i discovered citrix and we were the distributor so when i was at valancy we got citrix and citrix was a tiny little company at the time or tiny europe anyway 
And again, I met these fantastic people and I, I, I was just enthralled by the technology. And I've always, always said that sometimes in, in your career, there are sort of three things when the, the sort of the magic happens. And the first thing is getting the product right. The second thing is the timing of the product. Cause you can have a great product, but the, the market sometimes isn't ready. And the third thing is the people. And when you get those three things aligned, that's when greatness happens. And it really does. And that's exactly what happened at Citrix. And we just took off like a rocket. And the, the culture really, I think, always came from Mark. And I think John Burroughs, I think he deserves a lot yeah, of credit. He was so instrumental. In fact, I would even call those two the sort of the Lennon and McCartney of <laughs> the tech because yeah. they were both successful by themselves. But when you put them together, it was special. And the whole culture of the company really started from them. And I, I learned so much about what it's like to make people feel part of the mission and, and that they are helping change, change the world, really. I mean, that's what we felt like. We felt like we were doing something so different. It didn't feel like work because we were all on this mission to make the world better and, and it was so much fun. And Citrix was great for me. I, had, I ended up um, 10 years there. And, um, and I also got, that's how I got the move to the US because my dream was always to get back to Silicon Valley, having been out there as a 16 year old and an opportunity arose. The, the guy in, that was running the West Coast uh, left the company and the role opened up. So I asked my boss, Stefan Shostrom, who I, I also admired greatly. I found him a great boss. I asked him if I could apply for it and if he would support me. One thing I think I learned about Stefan and a lot of good managers actually is the way they think about things is they think about the company first, the team second and themselves last. They always put themselves like the best managers always do that. And you know, it was going to cause Stefan a problem if I left because there wasn't an immediate shoe in for that role. He, he was going to have to go external, but even despite that, he thought the company first. Um, so he did, he had, he thought I was the right fit for the role. He contacted the US guys. I, I got myself uh, an interview and a short list and I didn't actually think it was going to happen, but um, by some miracle it did happen and I managed to get the, the job. And three months later, I was out in California running this new team, which was quite a daunting thing to do. And I learned so much. It was, I'd say that was probably one of the most challenging parts of my career because I, I went over there with no network. I didn't know anybody. Um, you know, I was a I suppose in the UK, to a certain extent, I was a sort of a bigger fish in a small pond because, you know, Citrix had a big brand and I had a pretty big team. And I got to the US and I was very much a very small fish in a massive pond <laughs> and nobody knew me. I had to create my own network and build my own team and build my own reputation. And on top of all that, in 2008, when I moved out there, the financial market collapsed about three months later. And the reason I was going out there is because the West Coast was pretty broken. Um, they, they won some massive deals and those deals were drying up because they, they built the, the customers have built out the data centers, like the big uh, hyperscalers and um, those deals were coming to an end. We had to really start again and nobody wanted the job. That's why, that's why I realized they were trying to find someone because <laughs> nobody wanted it. But, you know, it's very difficult to get to the U.S. Um, if, you know, you need some sort of a visa and all that sort of stuff. So I was lucky enough that the company supported me and sponsored me. And it was a brilliant experience. Um, but when I got there, I sort of, it became quite apparent what the problems were. Because, yes, they lost these big deals, but it was actually deeper than that. When things, when you're not growing and you're not succeeding, people start to look inward. They start to look at each other. And then you get this sort of blame culture. And it's like, well, 
you know, it's not my fault, it's the channel's fault because they're not delivering. Or the channel said, well, we teed up these deals and your guys couldn't close them. And it was all this sort of infighting. And one of the first things I, I realized was that no one was talking, the managers weren't talking to each other. So I would have these meetings and it was sort of on, on the phone. And I realized the first thing we had to do is we had to get together. We had to get in a room together and we had to thrash this thing out until we had a plan. You know, we had to get aligned. Alignment is one of my keywords in, in management. And we really had to get aligned so that um, we could solve this. So the first thing we did was we, we had a meeting and we drew out the plan and everyone bought into it. And then every Monday morning, rather than sitting on the end of a phone call, we all got in the office together. And I realized that there were certain people in the wrong roles. And um, one of the other things I, I found out was that there were no clear rules or distinctions. So people were doing things that they thought was, were right, but it was actually overlapping other people. They thought it was their job. So it was always confusion. And we got it turned around in the end and, and um, things started taking off and eventually we got it back on its feet. And it was, it was an incredible experience. I don't, I don't think I've ever worked so hard. Um, and it was also the time when John Burris left, actually. That was when John left about a year into that. And the culture did start to change a lot. And, you know, good and bad. After 10 years, I felt for me, I, I wanted something different. And in Silicon Valley, uh, what you really want out there is to work to the startup. People love the fact you've worked at a startup. Um, it looks great on your CV. So I thought, this is it. I'm going I'm to go and do a startup. <laughs> so I joined a little startup and, you know, I, I'd gone from running this big team to being uh, pretty much, you know, one sales guy. It was me. I was, you know, cold calling and trying to rustle up this business, a company called Partnerpedia. Um, quite invigorating that, I would have thought. Yeah, it was, well, it was, it was great experience because, um, you know, you're right back to square one. And I think um, it goes back to my advice that I had right early on about get, get into the right company and, and it doesn't matter what you do and you know, always be humble enough to start at the beginning and, and grow with it. And um, anyway, within nine months, we got acquired. It was, that was, uh, that was incredible, really. I mean, it's, it's uh, we were, we were running out of cash, I think, at the time, so it was getting a little, little stressful, but uh, we, we got acquired, and, and uh, what they wanted was the technology, not the people, so, uh, so that was the end of my job. <laughs> I was, I was, uh, they didn't want me, they wanted the development team, so that's when I um, came across NVIDIA. I wasn't sure about NVIDIA, because I didn't even really know who they were, because they were a gaming company at the time, and I was an enterprise software guy, really, at that point, and, you know, I so I'd never come across them. I wasn't a gamer. And so I, I go in sort of reluctantly to, to meet Shanker and he had taken the day off. He was on a, it was a public holiday, I think. And he said, come and meet me on, on this Monday and we're going to have a coffee and chat. And um, he was just so inspirational. And again, it was, it was the people thing. And he was telling me how they had these massive plans to get into the enterprise and the data center. This is going back right back to 2013. And uh, anyway, sure enough, they, that's exactly what they did. They, they, they got into the data center and my role was to uh, work with Citrix and VMware to virtualize graphics and build out this global sales team from scratch. We had no, there was no business. I'm not, when I say no, I, I mean literally zero dollars. <laughs> but I was inspired by Shankar and this vision that he, he portrayed and, and how we were gonna do it. And, and it was really thanks to him that I got into the company and had a great career there as well it was a that was another as it turned out it was a pretty decent vision yeah it was it was the vision um it was the 
what I loved about Shankar was um, his inclusive nature. He included people. He he was always the first to talk about everyone else's success. I, I don't ever remember him talking about his own success. He was talked about, you know, uh, when things were tough, he would always support his people. Um, you, he was always there for advice. And I think if, you know, if I wasn't sure about some, something, sometimes some managers see that as a sign of weakness. If you go and ask for help and their response is, well, you should know that, you know, you're a senior guy, you just figure it out. Um, but the best managers are the ones that you can go and have that conversation with because, you know, we're all human and then be able to figure it out together. That's when, you know, that's when I think you can, you can achieve greatness because nobody's perfect. You know, not even Steve Jobs and all these big guys, you know, they all have problems that they need to solve. And if you can solve them with other great people and it, it makes your life a lot easier. Um, so yeah, so that was NVIDIA. And then I came back to Europe with NVIDIA. Then I left NVIDIA to sort of semi-retire. I think I sort of thought at this point I was going to have a break. But then six months uh, later, I started my own software company. It's a little cloud-based and mobile app, uh, which was a bit of a personal project for me because it's, it's to help landlords manage their, their properties. And I'm a landlord and I was looking for some software to do this, couldn't find any. And I decided I'd, I'd, uh, I was ready for a new project. And and we're just about to do our big sort of launch next week. So that's another, that's a whole topic on its own, but that's, that's another really exciting chapter. So, so yeah, so there's my long uh, potted history. I did try and keep it fairly brief. But not, not, not really semi-retirement at all. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. So, but yeah, so it's been a lot of fun. And I, I, I'm, you know, I, I feel very lucky that I got into technology early and I, I had the opportunity early because a lot of people don't find it till later and, I'm yeah. trying to encourage my own kids to go the same direction, but they're not quite as interested in tech, unfortunately. Not yet, anyway. So we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> so obviously you had a senior role with Citrix in the UK and you moved to a very senior role at Citrix in the US. Um, you know, same company, selling the same solutions. Was it just the same job, just with a slight difference in language? Or, or was, was, it, was it a real different gig? I, I thought it was going to be the same role, <laughs> but it actually turned into be a very different role um, for lots of different reasons. Um, one of the reasons is you forget how big the US is. It's an absolutely massive landmass. You know, the whole of the UK could fit in just California in terms of the size of the, the place. And also, um, you know, you think a lot of the UK is concentrated in a, in a few cities, whereas it's very, very spread out all over the US. So um, when I was running the UK Citrix piece, I was it was more of a general manager role really because I was I was sort of the spokesman for the UK Ireland South Africa business. So that means I would do things like press, I would run events, I'd be I'd get on webinars and I would do a lot of that stuff as as the sort of the, the spokesman for the, for the area. And I had my own marketing team. I had the renewals and the inside sales team. That rolled up to me because it was sort of my region. When I got to the US, because it's one language, you could centralize a lot of those roles. So instead of having to have my own marketing team for the West, we could just have one marketing team for the whole of the US that could support everybody. So I had a field marketing person that would just, just one person that would sort of help me with sort of localized events and stuff. But all the bigger stuff was done centrally. And I really got a good understanding of why the US would, you know, they'd roll out these programs 
And then they would send them off to the regions in Europe. And then Europe would say, well, this just won't work for us because, you know, we've got to localize it. You know, it's not a case of just rolling it out. So my role was much more of a sales, pure sales role, really, in the US. So it was more of a sort of a VP of sales rather than a general manager, really, role, I'd say, in, in the UK. And the other big thing that I, I found was a big difference is that in the UK, even though I had South Africa and Ireland, those regions were quite small. I think South Africa was about 5% of our business and Ireland was even smaller. So the main concentration of everything we were doing was in the UK. So when, when we had a quarterly meeting or even a monthly meeting, everybody would come in the office and you could see everyone and you could discuss things and get together. When I was out in the US, we were scattered. You know, we had, I had 11 states, I think it was, and um, people all over the place that never met each other. You know, they never, even though we were all in the same region, they never even met because they were so scattered through, through these different regions. So I, so that was all about managing people remotely. Whereas in the UK, you just get together and you could, go and have a coffee and you could chat things through out there it was it was very remote everyone was doing their own thing and I think one of the biggest challenges was trying to keep the alignment to make sure is because we were also trying to rebuild this thing and I was trying to create these you know new structures and new rules and trying to get that message out across a very diversified team was was quite a challenge and also because we had all these centralized roles throughout the U.S. So you had lots of people giving direction, not, not, not on purpose to try and distract what I was trying to do, but they all had their own agendas. You know, like you'd have overlay sales teams that would be centralized and, and they would have their agenda of trying to promote new products. And, but then I might be saying to the region, you know, the priority is, uh, you know, this, 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 this product, this new version, we've got to get this to market. We've got to, you know, it's a new thing. We've got to focus on it. But you'd have overlay teams or the new marketing messages and stuff that were sort of all pitching for, uh, for, for everyone's time. So I'd say that was probably one of the biggest differences I noticed was just the way um, people were managed and, and how that sort of came together. I think that, I think that makes sense. You know, Vicky knows it was always a bit of a campaign of mine to get the Americans within VMware when, when we were on the advisory council to realise that Europe was different from America and that Europe wasn't just one big country. We mm. all spoke the same language that you kind of hinted mm. at. Um, bearing in mind, most of these software organizations, I guess, are um, America-centric. Is, is being as part of the US corporate team, is, is that a different relationship with the core of the, of the business from being e even top dog in the UK? Yeah, I, I think it was. I think it was pretty different. I think the, the other thing I noticed was that the sort of employment rules and stuff were different. So, you know, in, in the MIA, you know, you'd have a month contract or three months contract. And, and therefore, I think people felt a little bit more protected and they would, they would say sort of probably more what they really thought and maybe not hold back so much. Whereas in the US, um, you know, you could get rid of somebody with two weeks notice. And, and so I think... Wow. You know, and, and, and it was pretty harsh like that. Citrix, not, you know, Citrix were a very fair company, um, but, you know, I, I, so I'm not referring to Citrix, but, but the whole culture out there was, was a bit like that. You know, so I think a lot of the salespeople were very focused on uh, this term that, I, that is now seems to have come over here as well, but it's being sort of coin-operated. You know, sales guys 
guys, they, they would work really hard, but they were just about making as much money as they could because that was their job. Um, and because that was, you know, the sort of the, the, the culture of, or the nature of, of their role. Whereas I think in Europe, people do tend to think a bit more about maybe some of the, you know, the, the bigger picture. Um, but uh, yeah, but you know, there were a lot of similarities, um, things that worked extremely well in the US um, didn't necessarily work particularly well in Europe and, and the other way around as well. So it was, you know, a lot of things we could learn from each other actually. I can relate to that. When I took on a glo the global sales role and ran the global SMB business, we were doing that. We, I was given that role because of the success we'd had in Europe mm. and trying to pick that up and then take that into the US and then out to APAC as well. But particularly the US, I was very surprised. And actually, one of the things that surprised me the most was how different the channel was in the US versus Europe. In Europe, they were an awful lot more self-sufficient. They would lead the deals. In the US, it felt much more that they relied on the vendor to lead the deals yeah. and the partner was more a fulfillment arm. Is that something that you experienced as well? Yeah, very much so. And I, I, one of the reasons for that is because if you think of the, the large tech companies, they are all, to Sam's point, they're all American. So when they get started in Europe, rather than open up their own offices, they often start with a distribution partner. So they come over here and they, they and, and that distribution partner almost becomes the, 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 the face of that vendor. Well, that's um, how we were with Volanti right at the beginning. I remember going yeah. into meetings and saying I was from Citrix because Citrix yes. couldn't be bothered to come up to Manchester. That's right. And, and, and therefore they would, they would, compensate with more margin. So they'd give more margin to the distributors because they didn't have set up their own offices and their own sales teams and so on. And therefore the distributors would invest more because they could make more margin and, and that's how these things grew. But to your point in the US, they didn't need to do that because they already had their own sales team and their own offices and their own people. So those big distributors were just really in the main fulfillment houses. Yeah. And they really were coin operated. That was that was my experience. Yeah. Totally different. Yeah. Can we have some time with your sales team to train them? Yes, if you pay, you can get access to their sales yeah. versus going in and going, right, we're gonna we're gonna have a call out day because you're gonna make some margin out of this. Totally different. That's yeah. actually quite illustrative, I think, from my point of view, in that it probably explains why sometimes I felt like some of the corporate american side of things didn't necessarily value the channel yeah absolutely so the yeah. Build that, that that we as a collective not just softcat but you know the channel as a whole had mm. um but I, I didn't i didn't think i don't think i realized that there was so much of a difference between uk channel and us channel very interesting yeah, yeah. and actually sam um just so you know we We've just got agreement that we're going to have a VP of channel from another vendor who's going to talk to us about best practices. So that's another podcast that we'll get. We'll cover I'll that topic look, in more I'll detail. Look, I'll look forward to that one. I look forward we to will. giving him, him or her a hard time. <laughs> it's a her and she's very good. So you won't be giving her too much of a hard time, I don't think. <laughs> I'm sure I won't. Yeah. Cool. Interesting. So, so then you went to NVIDIA and that was, you know, rather than being a you know, a regional role, which the UK effectively was, or a sort of a central U US-centric role. Mm. This is global, right? 
Yeah, it was. It was a global role. What, what, what did you learn? What was different in a global role versus a, you know, even the US still qualifies as a regional role, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, it was very different. I mean, first of all, the travel, you know, because I, I, I think if you really want to do a global role properly and do justice to it, you can't sit in an office in Silicon Valley. You, you have to get out into the field. But I love that because I, I'd never been to China before or Japan or Singapore. And I sort of identified um, four or five key regions that would be our, our focus area. And I suppose you could think of the product I had was called Grid. And you could think of us like an overlay team in a way because we had all these other products and we had one sales team. And I was trying to get this new product going and it was quite a lot of heavy lifting because it was quite different from what everyone else was doing. So I managed to get a small team um, put into the region uh, globally. So I had some in Europe, some in China, some in Japan and so on. But even though they reported to me, they had a dotted line into the local managers, which is the way it should work. You know, So you've got the local alignment, but also the global direction as well very different cultures to deal with often different languages you know sometimes I'd sit in a room with a translator and we'd have to translate the whole meeting and you think we've you've understood each other and then two weeks later you're going off in different directions again. it's a whole different ball game isn't it I remember my first trip to China just so really? different having a translator in the room yeah and they don't often like to say no because people don't they want to be helpful and they want to try it and even if they haven't properly understood language is a funny old thing it's not black or white is it no it, it really isn't and then you've got to think about the markets as well so um you know like for instance in in europe uh we have big automotive like germany is huge for you know, all the car manufacturers and so on so that would be you know an area a very big market that you know other areas like uk wasn't so big in unfortunately nowadays <laughs> Or, um, or China, you know, they had the big hyperscalers and, and the US had the massive hyperscalers uh, like the Googles and Amazons and people like that. But Europe doesn't have them. We don't really have big hyperscalers here. So even though you, one product that you're trying to sell, you had to think about how that product would fit into different markets and therefore get the right team around it and get the right messaging and, and so on. So it was very diverse. I learned a lot, a lot about culture, really a lot about culture and what works, what doesn't work, your etiquettes going into meetings and, you know, when you should sit, when you should stand, how to give a business card and all this sort of stuff, which I'd really never come across uh, before. Uh, but it, I, I think you can, you know, everyone can learn so much from other people and other geographies and other cultures. As everyone has so much, I think, to give and to learn from each other that it, was a, it really was a great experience for me that. Yeah, we had Alan Barber, who was VP of the Global TAM organization at VMware. He's our podcast that's, that went out last week. And he said the same. He said, getting into a global role, you have to travel and you have to go and meet people and understand the environment that they're working in to yeah. really get to know them. Yeah, it was, it was really important. And, you know, our um, Jensen, who, who ran NVIDIA and was incredibly uh, inspirational to all of us. I mean, he was the founder of the company and is still there all these years later. And they're now like a $20 billion company. And he's still at the helm and still works just as hard today as he ever did. And, you know, he would, have, he would take the whole team and he'd have his QBRs in country. So, you know, everybody would head off to China or to Europe or wherever it might be. Uh, so that we were in region and we, you know, we, we were seen as a, 
you know, one team, one global team. And, and, and I think that was, you know, that was really important. Gosh, that's a best practice, isn't it? It really is. Because, you know, it's, it's very time consuming, you know, to take, uh, take a big team, you know, be like sort of 40 or 50 people. Uh, yeah, but the payback team. for really understanding that region and spending the time there versus, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it was, I can't remember who it was, I think it was Lewis talking about an experience that he'd had of some, some guy in the US talking about how EMEA runs, never been. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I right. imagine that's not that uncommon in you know right. big software vendors. Well, you know, yeah. the the only five percent of Americans have passports, uh, and yeah. you can see why. Because once you've lived there, you know it's such a vast country with one currency and one language. It's you know why would you need to travel? You can there's so many different places you can go and see. But it uh, it works both ways, doesn't it? Because I remember. Um, thinking America was like Florida. <laughs> yeah. I thought the whole of America was like Florida because that's all I'd been to yeah. through Citrix. And then going, the, the job that I had and, and all of the Microsoft partner events that were all over the US, going to the different regions, my goodness, mm. the yeah. diversity, yeah. even just the grass, totally different. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, and, and silicon it's, it's, it's like it's 50 different countries stitched together in a random coalition. That's exactly yeah. how I to describe it actually. Um, but Silicon Valley is is almost unique again because it's very yes. multicultural. Yes. That's because everyone goes there for tech. You know, so the best companies and the best people go to Silicon Valley and I was surrounded by these geniuses, which was quite intimidating actually. But I, I met some amazing people. You know, I met Mark Zuckerberg and I, I met Elon Musk and I, Jensen, obviously, at NVIDIA. And, you know, it's just some incredible people that I met. And you're surrounded by this, um, there's a sort of never say die attitude. You know, it's like, we can do it. You know, we'll, we'll find a way. You know, don't, don't anything get, get in our way. And, and, and I really love that. That, that, was, that was great. But I, I do remember any any advice for anyone considering going to America is, you know, I'd say grab the opportunity with both hands if you can. But I remember Stefan, my boss at Citrix, saying to me that uh, there's sort of three time periods that would be very, very pertinent to you. And they are sort of six days, six months and six years. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, six days, the first six days you'll get there and think, what the hell have I done? <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. I got out there and thought, oh my God, I've left the great job and everything was going smoothly. And now I've arrived, the financial meltdowns just happened and this team's all broken. And, and you, you, know, you go through this sort of period of wondering what you've done. Then you get through that. And about six months later, then you start thinking, actually, you know, it's, it's quite good here. I quite like it. And then you start thinking about buying a house and like sort of getting established. And then comes six years. And at six years, you start thinking to yourself, okay, am I here forever? Or is it time to go back? And that, again, is exactly what happened to us. We actually stayed for nine in the end, but after six years, our kids were, they were getting a little bit older, still, still quite young. But we started to think about if we don't go back, you know, by the time they're sort of 12, 13, then they'll be in high school, then they're in university, and then they, they'll never want to come back. because they'll, they'll, then, then they'll effectively be American. Uh, full, full blood American. And, and that was, a lot of people always ask me, why did you come back? You know, you always wanted to get Silicon Valley and you loved it and you did love it. And I'd say we were sort of 51% 
coming back and 49% staying. It was that close. And we did come back. I'm glad we came back. It was more for, uh, at the time, the kids were 12 and 13. So it was young enough. It was about as long as we could have left it. Yeah before they started the high school. But we did become American citizens while we were out there as well. So if I could definitely see myself going back at some point, I don't know if forever or whatever, but I could definitely, it's nice to have that option. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was a great experience. I, I would really recommend it to everyone, but just think about uh, the personal side of it. So there's, there's the business side and the excitement and what you'll learn, which is phenomenal. But then the personal side is just think about coming back because I did meet a lot of Brits that had missed that opportunity and they regretted it in a way. Their kids were in their 20s and they wanted to come back. Um, you know, their, their own families were getting older and they wanted to be back with their, you know, their, their parents and so on. But they really couldn't do it. And when your kids are out in California, you know, it's an eight hour time difference and 11 hours yeah. to see each other. It's, it, it makes things a bit, a bit complicated. Yeah, that's yeah. really good advice. So, Richard, as we wrap up, start to wrap up and bring it to a close, perhaps you could give us your three takeaways on building uh, and managing, running, improving uh, high performance sales teams. Yeah, sure. I, well, I think one of the first things is to understand your own weaknesses, actually, um, and, and the weaknesses of the team that you're trying to build, because nobody's perfect. Um, but once you understand those weaknesses, you can then find complementary people that have their have those strengths and. If, as long as you're, you're brave enough to admit your own weaknesses and, and, and your, your team are also brave enough, then actually you can put things together in a way that can really create amazing things. So I've always been big on that and also getting that structure right. So once you've got the team in place, make sure you get the rules right so that everyone understands their roles and responsibilities. And um, um, so I think that, that would be my first one. And then the second one I'd say is, is the vision. You know, you, as the leader, you've got to make sure you have a vision and you explain the vision properly so everyone understands what you're trying to do. And then when they've got it, get aligned to it. You know, so you've got it, you can't just say, yeah, I'm, I'm bought into it and then do something different. You've got to get people aligned to that vision to make sure you can execute on it. And then I say the third thing is the hardest bit actually, which is focus. And because everybody says focus. But what focus really means is learning to say no. Yes. And it's the absolute key. And, and I don't mean just saying, well, I don't want to do that. And you didn't want to do it anyway. I'm talking about things that you really want to do, but you still have to say no. And you have to say no for the good of the bigger picture. So, and that's really hard because sometimes you can have things which are going well, but it's not the right direction for the company or for the team, or there's something that's going even better. And if you move those resources over, you could do even better. And, you know, Jensen at NVIDIA was amazing at this. You know, he would move whole teams from a successful product to something that was even more strategically important. And, and I was just amazed at watching that in action. And, you know, it resulted in incredible results. One of the pieces of magic from Patrick Lencioni, he talks about having three strategic anchors so when you've got your three strategic anchors, then you know what you can say no against. You know whether things are in your core capabilities and where your focus is. And actually, I've been running a workshop this morning, helping a team identify areas to say no. Because as, as organisations go through hypergrowth, they just keep adding things on. No, we need yeah. to learn to say, what yeah. are we going to say no to? And it's really hard to do it. Yeah, it is. Yes. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, really, really powerful advice that I think. That yeah, it was. Really
they were really absolutely brilliant in fact i nearly cut in to your first one to say i think that's the best piece of advice i've we've had in all of the ones that we've done yeah know yourself yeah fantastic that's that goes back to socrates in about uh what would it have been 450 bc or something you can all take out on know thyself you can cut that bit out vicky you don't need my random philosophy crap (laughs) as as we draw this to a close uh perhaps you could lead us into team experience that has replaced hero time thanks um yes so just for our listeners we have introduced the concept of team experience and team experience to us is what helps organizations execute faster it's that great sense of purpose it's having that trust in the organization that it's safe enough to say what you really think it's that clarity so you know what's expected of you And then it's about simplicity. It's about identifying what you're going to simplify and then you can go faster. So those are the operating elements of team experience. But actually, team experience is about how it really feels. So to us, team experience feels like a family. It feels like when you're feeling frazzled, people step in to help without without asking for any help. Mm. Those are just a couple of examples of what team experience means to us. So, Richard, what does team experience mean to you? I mean, I agree with all of that. I think for me, it's, it goes back to that alignment thing, Get, getting that, that inclusive feel. You know, when you feel part of it and you understand where you're going and, and what your part is to play, one yeah. thing I, I learned very early on is that the best companies, even if you're the guy in the warehouse or whatever it might be, you're included in it. Your mates have realized that your role is really, really important to getting the company from A to B and um, getting that inclusive nature, getting people aligned to the vision. I, I think it all starts from there and it's, it's really, you can't underestimate it. Brilliant, thank you. Cool, nice sharp, sweet summary at the end, fantastic. <laughs> A total of four fine, magnificent pearls of wisdom to summarize <laughs> our conversation today there. Thank I think you, Richard. That- that's a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. And it just remains for me to say thanks for listening to Get Amplified from the Amplified Group. As always, your comments and your subscriptions are gratefully received. Mm-hmm.